Hello, and welcome to NetPosi, a podcast about activism and technology. I'm Drew Wilson, and today I'm at the Center for Civic Media at the MIT Media Lab in Boston, Massachusetts. In this episode, we're talking with Corey Doctor about social change in the internet age. Corey is a science fiction writer, a journalist, and a digital rights activist. He's well known as a vocal critic of restrictive copyright laws. He often speaks out against overbroad anti-hacking laws, and his novels often illustrate emerging political topics related to technology and tech policy. And he's also a generally weird and interesting guy who shares weird and interesting stuff on the internet. You might have seen some of his work on boingboing.com. Before we dive into this interview, there's one thing that I'd like to point out that you just can't pick up from the audio of this interview. The entire time when Corey and I were talking, he was picking a lock. So as you're listening, keep that mental picture in mind. We're sitting on a red couch in the MIT Media Lab, and Corey is repeatedly picking a lock, closing it again, and picking the lock again. Okay, let's jump right in. Corey, tell me about your activism. Sure. So, you know, I started off as someone who was interested in questions about free expression and copyright and creativity. And those are still important issues to me because, you know, one of the things I do is I'm a, an artist, a working artist. Most of my income comes from publishing novels. Uh, and so those issues matter to me. But um, a funny thing happened on the way to the 21st century, which is that the rules that were established around those, some of which I think are very bad, started to impact a much wider range of activities that are traditionally not in the realm of the arts. Uh, and I became more and more alarmed about the unintended consequences as opposed to the intended consequences. I think a lot of people look at copyright maximalism and the idea that, you know, Disney is locking up the public domain or what have you. And they think that the bad thing here is the intended consequence, that we have created a system that allows for kind of corporate oligarchy and where we have arbitrary systems of censorship and surveillance for independent kinds of creativity and where your mashes and mashups and remixes can be taken down. But the reality is that um, for every person who cares about those issues, there are thousands and thousands, if not millions, more people who are affected by the wider issues. In 1998, we created a, a law in America called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. And uh, it has a lot of objectionable clauses in it. But the one that I'm really worried about is the clause that prohibits circumvention, that's breaking digital locks. Uh, prior to the DMCA, it was presumptively lawful to defeat some kind of anti-tampering measure in a thing you owned. Not necessarily then go out and commit a crime with it, but if you owned a thing, if your dishwasher was designed to only take the manufacturer's dishes, and you changed that so that you could use anybody's dishes, that was not unlawful. Um, and what the DMCA did was they made it presumptively unlawful to remove or tamper with any log, even if you never broke the law after removing that log, and even if that log was on a thing that belonged to you, even if it was on your phone, your music. And the intended consequence that most people focused on was the way that was it, um, a way of allowing manufacturers to rip off consumers. So you know, you you buy a CD, it doesn't have a lock on it, so. Third parties can make programs like iTunes that rip the CD and automatically move the music to your phone so you don't have to buy the music twice. A DVD has a not very good lock on it. But regardless of how good the lock is, the law requires uh, that nobody make a tool to remove the lock to accomplish the otherwise lawful task 
of turning that DVD into a movie that would run on your phone. And so you have to run that, you have to buy that movie from uh, the iTunes store or one of the other stores if you want to watch it on your phone. And that's the intended consequence. And it has spread into many domains because everything we own these days has copyrighted works in it because everything we own is a full-fledged general purpose computer and general purpose computers have operating systems and software and those are copyrighted works and so from your toothbrush to your insulin pump to your car to your airplane to your house's HVAC system and thermostat every one of those is a computer and every one of those has a copyrighted work and these days every manufacturer has said you know I could make more money if the only people who could supply parts for this was me and I could make more money if the only people who could repair this was me and I could make more money if the only people who could add on to this or uh, approve software for this was me and so they've all added the thinnest possible digital lock not a particularly effective one but a legally sufficient one to stop third parties from making parts or consumables or changing the functionality of these devices and we should be incensed about the intended consequences of this. It's to make sure that you buy your GM parts from GM and that you can only get your GM car fixed by a GM mechanic who's promised to buy parts from GM. And if you tried to take it to another mechanic, that mechanic couldn't even find out what your GM car was doing without removing the digital lock that controls the diagnostics. Um, and that's the thing we should worry about because it's a ripoff. But where this unintended, unintended consequence rears its head and the thing that we should be really, really worried about, the thing that eclipses the creative concerns and the commercial concerns is security research. Because we have exactly one methodology for figuring out whether something is secure, and that's disclosure. Anyone can design a security system that works against themselves. All that means is that it works on people who are stupider than you. And somewhere out there is someone smarter than you who can figure out how to defeat that security system. This is the difference between science and alchemy, is whether or not you disclose your findings so that third parties can subject it to adversarial review. And we now have a situation where devices from medical implants to cars exist in this zone where federal governments around the world, because the U.S. has exported this policy to all of its major trading partners, will spend tax dollars or tax euros or lira or whatever, will spend tax money prosecuting people who divulge um, vulnerabilities, programmer defects, in systems that have the power of life or death over us. And that doesn't mean that those defects go away, and that doesn't mean that those defects aren't independently discovered. It means that you and I, the users of those systems, have no insight into whether or not they are safe for our use, but spies and criminals and law enforcement and griefers and voyeurs avail themselves of these bugs that are that exist in these devices which have become long live reservoirs of digital pathogens because no one's allowed to report on them and they exploit them to our detriment and that is things like VW and Dieselgate and Chrysler were calling 1.4 million cars because they had long lived vulnerabilities in them that allowed anyone in the world to control their steering and brakes over the internet and that is um, medical devices like uh, the medical devices we heard about this year at the Copyright Office and their hearings on this. Jay Radcliffe who's a type 1 diabetic and has audited the source code on the major insulin pumps says that he would prefer to take years off his life by manually testing his blood sugar and sticking himself than use an automated pump because they have wireless interfaces and from 30 feet away people can kill you in your boots 
right? And this is the thing that we should worry about, not whether or not you can make mashups, as important as that is, not whether or not you're being ripped off with the inkjet printer business model for your car and your house and everything else you own, although that's important too, but whether or not the nervous system of the 21st century, the internet, and its endpoints, the general purpose computers, have been turned into reservoirs of digital pathogens that can fuck you in every way from asshole to appetite. In a time when there's like a, a refugee crisis in Europe, when, when there's climate change, when there's these giant issues, like, how does this fit into that? So, you know, it's true that the issue of the internet is not the most important issue we have. You know, as you say, there are millions of Syrians on the move and they're just one tranche of refugees on the move in one region. There are refugee crises that are nearly as big in other places in the world that just don't affect as many rich white people that we don't hear as much about. Um, there's climate change, there's uh, systematic oppression and, uh, on the basis of gender and race and sexuality and so on. All of those are giant, horrible, terrible problems. And every one of those fights is fought, fought and won or lost on the internet. And it's fought and won or lost with digital devices. And unless those devices can be made safe for human consumption and safe for human coexistence, then every one of those fights is going to be lost. Right? We need computers, we need an internet of things that do what they're told, that act on our behalf, that don't betray us, that don't treat us as things. Um, otherwise, we can't win any of those struggles. With that in mind, is there like, who do you see as the enemy here? Like, what is the overarching thing that these these movements are about? That that mm -hmm. copyright reform is about? That people who are helping refugees? What's the overarching thing here? Is there one? Well, I think that there there's more than one common theme among them. So in the in the realm of computers, I would say that um, we have a combination of. Uh, perverse incentives or moral hazards, um, bad market economics, and authoritarianism that kind of come together. So uh, we have this um, normally in, in uh, unequal societies, there is an equilibrium between the amount of money that can be arrogated to the 1% or the ruling elites uh, and the amount of money that they have to take from their fortunes and spend on guard labor to stop poor people from killing them for having all the money, right? Or taking some of the money. This is Thomas Piketty, you know, in Capital in the 21st Century. Over and over again, he returns to the guillotine and the wealth disparity on the eve of the French Revolution. This is his warning sign. We are approaching guillotine levels of wealth disparity. If you want to keep your head, opt for a global wealth tax. But um, the implication of uh, economic rationality is the driver for uh, redistribution or social justice is that if it's economically rational to keep more money because guard labor gets cheaper then we can afford to have a more unequal more authoritarian society so 50 years ago the uh, Stasi the NSA of East Germany had one informant for every 60 people in the GDR that was their ratio of spies to spied Today, the NSA has a ratio of 1 to 10,000, and that's because there have been gigantic productivity gains in the labor inputs for surveillance. And so what that means is that surveillance is cheap, and what that means is that surveillance as part of guard labor has moved the equilibrium point for when we need to build schools and roads as opposed to guns and walls. And so that's one piece of this. Another piece of this is that um, wealth disparity is created through automation. 
So um, having a lot of um, uh, a lot of margins or very high margins through uh, digital logs produces rich people. So GM's executives get bigger payouts when GM can return to its investors higher dividends because you and I aren't allowed to get our cars serviced by independent mechanics. And so the interests of wealthy people, uh, when wealth is very concentrated, in, even in the most liberal of democracies, trumps the evidence. And so although the evidence is self-evident that it is better for society, for car owners, for the world, for me to be able to bring my property to any mechanic and ask that mechanic to fix them and that the state shouldn't be intervening in my property relationships and there's no theory of capitalism that says that my private property should be regulated by the state because there's a copyrighted work inside of it this is just a theory of oligarchy but the oligarchs uh, who control the money and policy outcomes have um, a need to override the um, the uh, evidence here and the there's a kind of interreaction where the more evidence they override the richer they get the richer they get the more evidence they override and the more technology there is that isn't controlled by its users the easier it is to surveil people and the less of anyone's individual fortune needs to be turned into a social program uh, because you can devote a much smaller sum to mass surveillance so these are these are interrelated facts now the other crises that we experience like the climate crisis and the and the refugee crises those crises are in part the outcome of not having evidence-based policy. This is the, the classic idea of corruption, that if there's someone who's getting rich by doing something that isn't in the common, in the public interest, uh, and they are rich enough, then they can influence the state to allow them to, con to continue to keep doing it. And um, climate change is the result of a very concentrated set of benefits and a very diffuse set of costs. We all bear a little bit of the cost of climate change, but the benefits of the activities that led up to climate change are disproportionately in the hands of a small number of people who fund climate change denial and who fund inaction on climate change. Um, the refugee crisis is intimately related to climate change because, of course, it's in part driven by it. The Arab Spring was not just kicked off by transparency and surveillance, it was also kicked off by famine. Uh, and so famine is, a, is an outgrowth of climate change exacerbated by uh, bad market economics. You had giant investment banks cornering markets on agricultural staples and all of these factors are all interrelated. Do you see a path out of this? Do you see a way forward? So I'm a great believer in hope as opposed to pessimism or optimism. So a way forward I think often implies like do you have a program that takes us from here to utopia? And I don't have that program. What I have is a next step. Because the first casualty of any battle is the plan, right? I don't have a long, involved plan that takes us from here to utopia. But I know a thing that we have to do. If things are going to get any better, there is one thing we have to do, and that's to make our computers obey us. Because nothing can be fixed unless we have computers that obey us that we can use to coordinate our actions. You know, pessimism and optimism are predictions about the future, right? The future will be better, the future will be worse. Science fiction writers have no business making predictions about the future. It's like drug dealers who sample their own product. It ends badly. Um, and the reality is that if I felt that the future was foreordained to be wonderful and that the computers would become our allies instead of our adversaries, I would get up every morning and do everything I could to make that our future. 
And if I was pessimistic about the future and I thought that we were building the infrastructure of a kind of surveillance state that gives us both Orwell and Huxley with a bit of Kafka thrown in for, you know, zest, I would get up every morning and do exactly what I would do if I was optimistic. So instead of being optimistic or pessimistic, I'm hopeful. And hope is why if you are a refugee whose ship has sunk in the middle of the Mediterranean, you tread water. Not because you're going to be picked up. Almost everyone whose ship sinks never gets picked up. But because everyone who was ever picked up treaded water until help arrived. Right? And it's the necessary but insufficient precondition for effecting a better change. And so I have a thing I know I can do and that maybe you can help us with. That is making computers free and open and having a free, open and fair electronic infrastructure for the information age. Uh, that I think will improve all of those other fights. And I don't know how to win all those other fights. I just know how to lose them. And you lose them by not having the infrastructure. And so that's the thing I'm going to do. And then we'll figure out what to do after that happens. Thanks. I have, I have, I have one question that I like sure. to ask folks. Um, and it's about magic. Okay. If you were able to wave a magic wand mm -hmm. and have one thing changed... Uh, one thing in the world changed that would like help achieve the things that you want to achieve, what would that be? Well, so the thing is one thing is, could be really, really huge, right? Like I would reform all governments to end corruption, right? I guess that's my one. If, if I can only choose one, that this is the genie problem, right? I mean, I don't know. I would change. I would, the one thing I would change is that I only have one thing I could change. And I would make that into one million things I could change. And then I would change all of those. No, I mean, end all corruption, right? And the formal definition of corruption, which is like uh, state policies or institutional policies that um, uh, concentrate, that don't support evidence and concentrate benefits into a few hands by uh, creating costs that are diffused against many hands. And so it becomes a stable long-term form of corruption. If I could end that everywhere in the world at the stroke of a pen, I'd do it. And have a thousand more... And uh, but if, if assuming you precluded the asking for a million other things you could change, then yes. To stay in the loop, follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to our mailing list on netpolicy.com, and you can subscribe using iTunes. 